are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's live question and answer. I'm David Guzik with the uh, Enduring Word Bible Commentary. Got this YouTube channel. Very glad you could join us today and glad you could be with us for a time where I'm going to begin by throwing out a question that somebody has sent in through social media or whatever. And then I'm going to be here to take whatever questions or comments you have that you put in the chat window and I'll respond to them the best I can. Very happy to be here on Thursday afternoons, 12 noon Pacific time. And whenever you can enjoy us, join us, I'm grateful for that. I also enjoy very much that we have people from all over the world who oftentimes can join us. So let me get to the question that uh, came in through social media. Uh, before I do, I want to say that I've got a friend here in studio, Tim Rogers, who does Christian work in Asia. And I'm very pleased that Tim could be with us here. He's off in the distance there, just smiling. And yes, it is awesome. Okay, here's the question. Does God allow self-defense? And here's the question that came to my social media from James. He says this, in your Deuteronomy chapter 19 commentary on verses four through seven, where I'm discussing the purpose for the city of refuge, I have this line. I say this, quote, the person who kills another accidentally or in self-defense. And by the way, my whole point in that, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, where it's talking about the cities of refuge, the cities of refuge were there to protect the person who killed someone else accidentally or in legitimate self-defense to defend them from what was known as the avenger of blood, the goel, the redeemer, that family appointed person who would be there to defend the uh, justice for that family. Okay, so James's question is this, please, I will appreciate if you can throw more light on the subject of killing in self-defense, are there biblical examples and are there modern day illustrations of killing in self-defense? God bless you. Well, Jane, let me say first and foremost, I think that is a great question that you're asking because I think this is a question that Christians many times have misunderstood throughout the centuries. There are some Christians who come from a more, maybe we'll say it a more pacifistic uh, they believe in pacifism, uh, which means there should be absolutely no physical resistance to evil. That There is that tradition in the historic Christian community. There, there are people who believe that and believe that there is no biblical basis for self-defense. I would respectfully disagree with those believers and say that the Bible does give a legitimate uh, reason for self-defense. And let me give you a few scriptures that speak to that. First of all, in Exodus chapter 22, verses two and three, it gives the property owner the right to defend his property, even using force when necessary. Let me read those two verses to you. Exodus chapter 22, verses two and three, it says this, if the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He shall make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Now, here's the idea. Is what it's saying there in Exodus chapter 22, verses two and three, is that if a homeowner, for example, catches a thief in the act of 
robbing his home at nightfall. And uh, if in the course of that, he strikes the thief so that he dies, th there's never the idea here that the homeowner is intentionally striking the thief so that he dies. But again, he's defending his property. He strikes the thief. And if he dies, then as it says there in verse two, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Now, it's a different set of rules in the law described there in Exodus. It's a different set of rules if the sun has already risen, if there should be other mitigating factors. But the principle, and by the way, these laws in Exodus chapter 21, 22, 23, we really need to regard them as legal principles. It's almost like a set of case law that's given. And part of the case law that would be established is a homeowner has the right to protect his property. Now, if the homeowner has the right to protect his property, how much more does he have to protect his own person and the person of the weak and the defenseless, and in particular, the person of his own family, his own wife and children? So that really establishes right there in Exodus chapter 22, the principle of self-defense. But that's not all. If you will remember in the book of Nehemiah chapter 4, when they were rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and there came this attack against the people, uh, it, it says this, this is what Nehemiah said to the people. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Now, again, we are not specifically told in Nehemiah chapter four, at least as far as I can remember, that this was God's command. This was Nehemiah's word to the people. Yet the whole context of Nehemiah chapter four puts this in terms of approval. God approved of this. Again, let me read that to you again. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Again, I find that again interesting that the idea of self-defense is given for your family, your community, and even your property. And then one other place I would quote in the Old Testament has to do in the book of Esther. Now, we all love the book of Esther. It's one of the most amazing and in some ways humorous books in the Bible, just the way that the story is told and the way the story works out. But it's often forgotten that at the very end of the book of Esther, the Jews gathered together in a massive act of self-defense having to do with the attack that was going to come to them from around the Persian Empire. And so uh, it says this, by these letters, I'm reading from Esther chapter 8, verse 11, by these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. And then later on in Esther chapter 9, verse 5, it says this, Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Again, we are given this entirely in the context of God's approval. As a matter of fact, God guiding this on behalf of the Jewish people, giving them the right to self-defense. So it is given to us many times in the scriptures that we do have a right of self-defense. And this even translates over into the New Testament. A lot of people, it's just, I'll just say this, it's easily overlooked that the disciples 
carried with them the implements for self-defense. Luke chapter 22, verse 38 tells us that apparently the disciples normally carried swords with them. Matter of fact, verse 38 mentions more than one sword. It mentions swords multiply, at least in the plural, that they normally carried swords with them for self-defense. And then just a few verses before that, Jesus said that the day would come and perhaps was even then that the unarmed should arm themselves. Again, not for the sake of conquest or anything like that, but in the sake of, again, self-defense. So the New Testament carries this right of self-defense over into itself as well. Now, let me say this. I think one of the most misunderstood passages having to do with self-defense comes in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spoke of turning the other cheek uh, regarding those people who attack you. Now, we need to understand, and again, I'm really not going out on a Bible limb here. This is really established by the rabbinic literature of the day, by the other Jewish literature of the day. In that day, the strike on the cheek was fundamentally perceived to be an insult against somebody's honor. Jesus wasn't saying, if somebody hits you across the head with a baseball bat, let him hit him against the other side of your head with a baseball bat. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, if somebody insults you, even in a strong and vigorous way, then don't defend yourself against that. Don't don't attack other people. Now, by the way, since we're on YouTube here and it's all connected with social media, isn't that a word for social media in the day today? that people insult other people in social media all the time. And Jesus said that we should be very long-suffering and forbear insults that are made against us. Nevertheless, the New Testament, the Old Testament tell us that we have the right, and may even say the responsibility to defend ourselves, to defend the weak, the vulnerable in our families. Now, especially when it comes to our own self-defense, This is a right that we may at times lay down for the glory of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, we have this right. Remember here in the story of a boxer who became a Christian in England of the 19th century. I've got his biography somewhere in the books behind me. I'm not going to take the time to go find that biography and show it to you. If I was better prepared, I would have had it right in my hand and showed it to you. But this man's name was Richard Weaver or Dick Weaver. And he was a great evangelist, come from a very working class sort of background. He was a boxer before he became a Christian. And he was just one of these great manly, manly, rough and tumble evangelists in England of the 19th century. And I remember reading the story about Dick Weaver, how being a former boxer, he had a man starting to heckle him during a time when he was street preaching. And this is what the man said. He said, well, what about that business of turning the other cheek, Dick Weaver? Would you do that? And he said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'd do it. And so, well, let's do it now, the man heckled and said. And this is what Richard Richard Weaver offered his jaw to the man and let the guy wind up and punch him across the face as hard as he could. Richard Weaver, even though he was a boxer and a big, strong man, he staggered. He didn't fall down, but he staggered under the blow. And then he stood back and he looked at the man and he gave him his other cheek. The man was so freaked out that he became a Christian and converted right there on the spot. Now, that's a time where 
Dick Weaver was a man who laid his right to self-defense down at that moment for the glory of Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, it was his right to defend himself that he laid down. And this is something that I think is established throughout the scriptures. James, thank you for your question. And I think that was a good. Now, I'm going to turn my attention here to some of the questions that are in the chat window, and uh, we'll make our way through some of those. Um, Agnes says, a pastor said that God is male and female, so therefore he accepts transgenderism. Does God have a gender before Jesus came into the world? Wow. Um, Agnes, what a great question. And uh, I didn't ask you to write that question, but I'm glad you did. Agnes, this is a very important question. So I hope that our viewers will listen carefully to what I believe is my biblical understanding of this. Let me read her question again. Agnes writes, a pastor said that God is male and female, so therefore he accepts transgenderism. Does God have a gender before Jesus came into the world? Okay, Agnes, let me say this. God does not have a gender, objectively speaking. In the big picture of who God is, God is above the concepts of male and female. He's greater than that. God is not male and female, nor is he female, nor is he male. Objectively speaking, God is greater than those gender uh, identifications, those gender titles that we have, and or may I say even those gender facts that we have in the world today. Now, nevertheless, even though we know this about God, that God is greater, that he's above gender, it is extremely significant that consistently throughout the scriptures, God represents himself as male. It doesn't mean that God is male. He's above gender. He's neither male nor female, nor is he male and female. But God has consistently chosen to represent himself as male in the scriptures. And I think that this is something that is very important and neglected. Now, let me say right from the outset on that. There are a few places in the scriptures where God represent himself in somewhat we would call maternal uh, images as a hen gathering the chicks under her wings, as uh, you know, a loving mother that cares for her people. There are a few isolated places where God does represent himself with what we would call maternal characteristics. But let me say, those are vivid exceptions to the rule. I mean, I would have to say that if you added up every time that God represents himself in some kind of male aspect, and every time God represents him some kind of maternal aspect, that it would be well more than 99% of the time God represents himself as male. Now, again, does that mean it's because God is male? No, he is above male and female. God doesn't have a gender as we think of gender in our modern society, but God knows something about humanity as he has created us. And this is the principle. God has created humanity 
to respect and to respond to male spiritual authority. It's not to say that there is no role for a woman to exercise spiritual authority in her particular sphere, but overwhelmingly, God presents himself as male because God has designed us to respond to and to respect male spiritual authority. That's why when God took on human flesh, became a baby in Bethlehem, added humanity to his deity, that's why it was expressed in a male form, in Jesus of Nazareth, who obviously was a man. That's why overwhelmingly, well over 99% of the time, God is represented to us in the scriptures as being male. And again, I, I know I've said this about five times already. I don't mind saying it again. It's not because God is in fact male. He's above those concepts. But God knows there's something within us that responds to male spiritual authority. So this is one of the reasons why God orders things the way he does in the church. One of the reasons why he orders things the way he does in the family. And this is an important principle. I think we neglect it as at our peril. Now, back to your direct question, Agnes. No, God does not approve of transgenderism. And this is what I'm just trying to say this. When we reject the gender that God created us with, that, that we came into the world with, that is a way of rebelling against God as creator. And we need to submit to God. We need to submit to God as our savior, our redeemer, uh, the, the one who reveals himself to us, our guide, uh, the, the, the rescuer. But we also need to submit ourselves to God as our creator. And for me to reject God as the one who created me as male, or if I was a woman, which obviously I'm not, but if God uh, had created me as a woman, for me to reject the way that God created me as a woman, that is a fundamental rejection of God as creator. Now, what of those people who, who would do that? Listen, they, they don't need our anger. They, they don't need our rage. They need our loving compassion as the people of God that would show them God's love even to confused and rebellious people, but, but really to the goal of prayerfully and lovingly bringing them into the place where they would genuinely honor God as creator and surrender to God as creator. That This is where life is found. This is where abundant life is found. So again, Agnes, great question. I'm really glad that you asked it. Let me go on. Jennifer says, blessings from Massachusetts. Jennifer, glad you could tune in. Dean, uh, you're welcome for the teachings. Alice uh, tunes in from South Africa. South Africa, Alice, glad you could tune in. It's nice to hear. Thank you for the work that you're doing for the translation work there of Enduring Word. Susan says, I told everyone on Instagram your wisdom is amazing. I feel awkward reading that, Susan, but thank you for writing it. Uh, Joel says, what are your views on John Walton's view on Genesis 1 describing functional origin and the creation account 
as a cosmic temple text. All right, Joel, I'm going to read your question again, just so everybody gets it. What are your views on John Walton's view on Genesis 1 describing functional origin and the creation account as a cosmic temple text? Joel, let me give you sort of a quick answer to that. I'm really not familiar with John Walton's view on that. If you can send me some links for me to investigate it, I'd be happy to take a closer look. I, I don't want to try to speak authoritatively over things that I have not researched, but I thank you for raising the issue. I will say this about the Genesis 1 text. We believe, or let me just speak for myself, perhaps I speak for my guest, Tim, as well. We, we believe that the Bible should be taken literally. Now, before you hit your fainting couch, when we say that, let me be very specific. By literally, we mean according to its literary context. So when the Bible speaks historically, it's true history. When the Bible speaks legislatively with its law, it's true law. When the Bible speaks prophetically, it's true prophecy. When the Bible speaks poetically, it's true poetry. But, but we understand that there are different genres within the Bible. This Bible that we have, that we love, and that we, we love to, uh, to read and to preach and to do everything we can, that we understand that this Bible uh, is actually a collection of books. It's a collection of literature. Now, that being said, sometimes people get into trouble by taking a poetic passage of scripture and expecting it to be literally true in a historical sense. I should have this on the top of my mind, but I don't. There's a passage in the Psalms where David says, I made my bed swim with tears. Now, we don't believe that David actually cried so much that he flooded his room with the water from his tears and his bed was floating upon the tears. We understand he's speaking poetically and we understand the poetry perfectly. There's really no question there. Now, when we get back to Genesis 1, what we have is we have something curious. We have, to the best of my understanding, I need to be very transparent with all of my viewers and listeners right now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I just read the folks who are. From my research, it would seem that Genesis chapters one and two are a combination of genres. There's a real historical narrative aspect to Genesis chapters one and two, but there is also a poetic element there. Therefore, I think we should regard it as history may be described somewhat poetically, but not taking away from the historical value of it. This is where many of the interpretive controversies about Genesis 1 and 2 come into place. Some people want to regard it as only history, and I understand because it is written in a historical narrative. Other people want to take it as only poetry. But where I think we have to grapple with the fact that it is a combination of genres and to deal with it that way. All right, so that's kind of my take on that, on Genesis 1 and 2. If you want to send me some links about the cosmic temple idea, which I have heard that mentioned, I, I just don't have much real interaction with it to be able to give you any kind of authority. But I thank you for that question, Joel. 
Okay, next from Raquel says, I recently saw where popular preachers and local pastors hire bodyguards. Did the apostles have this practice? If not, should they have had in your view? Well, Raquel, you know how to ask the uh, the interesting questions here. All right. Uh, yes, it's true. And though I have never had a, well, I was going to say I've never had a personal bodyguard, but at our church here in Santa Barbara, where I used to be the, the, the lead pastor, we have a security team and somewhat those guys are looking out for me. When I say someone, I don't mean to say that they're not really looking out for, but it's not like that's their only assignment. It's not like I've got a detail of guys who do nothing else, but look out for me. But, but of course they, you know, they, they keep at least more than half an eye on me and, and how things are going. So I had something of bodyguards there. Uh, I, I think that it really depends on the threat level, number one. Um, look, from what I understand, there are pastors and preachers and other people who get real legitimate scary death threats. Now, that's not the world I've lived in. I, I suppose if I ever did live in that world, I'd have to figure out how I'm going to deal with it. So I, I think it has to be an honest assessment of the threat level. And I think there's also a matter of available resources. Let's face it. The early apostles had a legitimate threat level. That's true. But they did not have the resources to have an actual army or militia around them because that's what it would take to defend them against the uh, Roman and the Jewish officials at that time. And, and so it was just an absolute impractical thing. Now, I can say this, that if a pastor, a preacher, whatever, has bodyguards out of an inflated sense of self-importance that they either want to feed to themselves or others, then that's something wrong and something that they're going to have to answer with before God. However, if they are answering a legitimate threat that's out there, and if they do have the available resources to do it, then in and of itself, I see nothing wrong with it in and of itself. Uh, but again, could it be done with a wrong heart, with a weird heart? Absolutely. But you know, when you come to think about it, there's hardly anything in the Christian life that could not be done with a weird heart or a wrong heart. So that's kind of my view on that, Raquel. Thank you for that. Uh, Raquel says, I submit my question with all due respect. I am all for protecting. Oh, yes, Raquel, I got it. I got your question. It was very respectful. Thank you for offering. I do think it's a legitimate question. And, and I think it would be a fair thing to ask a person who has this for them to examine their heart and, and, and to make sure that it's really being done because there is a legitimate threat and uh, because the resources are available to do it. All right. Thank you for that, Raquel. Brian asks a question and he says, what are your thoughts on the B-Day-E-A-G and the Lawinda lexicon? Um, these are uh, original language resources. Um, you know, I am not familiar with the Lawinda lexicon. Um, the Brown Drivers uh, um, lexicons. Uh, for original language studies I've used in the past, I've found them helpful. Uh, in general, we shouldn't concentrate ourselves on one 
lexicon or dictionary source, but use a variety of sources to check against each other and to sort of get a, a, a read of things across. If, if we're just using one source as our authority for original language research, I think we leave ourselves a little bit vulnerable. And so I think it's wise to use several resources. And Brian, I don't have any problem with those being among the resources. Although to be honest, I don't really know about the Lonida, lo I guess, uh, the Lonida lexicon. All right, Lee says, prosperity teachers ask for money and promise miracle prosperity. Do you think that correlates with selling indulgences? Lee, let me give you an answer to that question. Yes. I could move on to the right next question, but I, let me give a little more full answer. As someone who's done a fair amount of historical research into Martin Luther, the selling of indulgences, Johann Tetzel, the whole thing that tended to be the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation in the uh, 16th century there, as someone who's done a fair amount of research of that and who's fairly familiar with modern practices of modern day prosperity and health and wealth teachers, I think that there's a lot of similarity. The idea that you can, by God's favor, by God's reward with what you give to the church or to a particular preacher or teacher. Listen, I, I'm very grateful for the people who kindly support the work of Enduring Word. Uh, we're a free internet Bible resource, mostly a text commentary, but we also have a lot of audio, a lot of video. We're very active in getting these materials translated into other languages. It's a big long-term project. And as I said before, I'm very grateful for the people who donate and help that. But I don't want anybody to donate to this work or to any work out of the idea that they can purchase the favor of God by doing so. God wants our motive for giving to be gratitude for what he has already given us in Jesus Christ and the excited sense of participation with the extension of God's kingdom in this world, which truly is an exciting thing and a marvelous way to use the material resources that God has given us. And so, yes, um, we, we do need to watch out for that idea that we can purchase God's favor or God's blessing by what we give. All right, let me just take a few more questions here. Uh, Joel writes, and he says, John Walton has written a few books on the subject book. I'm reading one called The Lost World of Genesis 1, if you'd like to check it out. Okay, Joel, great. I'll try to do a little bit of research on The Lost World of Genesis 1. Thank you for that. Levy says, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, and they overcame him, that is Satan, because of the blood of Jesus, uh, the blood of the lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. Amen. Amen for that. We, we, we need to understand this source of being a great overcomer. Uh, let me continue. Avis writes and says, Pastor Guzik, blessings. The Apostle Paul underwent persecutions as mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Why so much persecutions and what sort of self-defense did our Lord give him to sustain him? Well, in the persecutions that Paul suffered and that many others suffered, in the early church and suffer today. Look, brothers and sisters, the day of persecuted believers is not in the distant past, it's in the present day. 
it, it's a little hard to quantify, to, to give numbers to. But there is good reason to believe, listen carefully, there's good reason to believe that more people have died for being Christians in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. Did you hear what I just said? There's pretty good reason to believe, although the exact numbers are a little bit difficult, but there's pretty good reason to believe that more people have died for being Christians in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. And in the first 20 years of the 21st century, persecution, martyrdom, deprivation for the sake of Jesus Christ has not lessened one bit in the world. Now, the fact that Paul underwent such persecutions, it, it didn't mean that Paul was unable to defend himself. There are times when Christians can defend themselves, but it more so meant that Jesus Christ sustained him along the way. And we are given the pattern that there are times when we must lay down our lives for being followers of Jesus Christ. But let, let me say this. There is a difference from protecting yourself and your family against uh, crazy, irrational, criminal violence and persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ. There are things that we would be willing to bear if they were being brought to us for the cause of Jesus Christ that we would not bear if it was just happening to us from random criminals who wanted to practice violence against us or uh, take our things. So we, we need to make a distinction against the violence and uh, theft that happens in the world just because of the fallen condition of humanity and persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ that God may call us to endure. Great. Great aspect there, though, Avis. A uh, few more. Um, Aaron says, hi, Pastor David. Thank you so much for your ministry. I'm looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, and just curious as to where a New Testament Christian follows the law being under the new covenant. All right. Well, uh, I know, Aaron, that you're quoting from the Sermon on the Mount, but I do not have the entire Sermon on the Mount Memorize. Let me turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, where it says, Wherefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, I, I guess I could say, Aaron, that your basic question is, uh, are we under the new covenant obligated to keep the Mosaic law? The, the quick answer to that is no. We see the Mosaic law fulfilled in Jesus Christ, yet the morality reflected to us in the Mosaic law is repeated for us in the New Testament as new covenant believers. And so we are to keep that. So as a principle, the Sabbath is carried over the New Testament, but not technically as a day. Uh, of course, the commandment against murder is repeated for us in the New Testament or the New Covenant. The commandment against theft is repeated for us in the New. The commandment against adultery is repeated for us in the New Testament under the New Covenant. The ceremonial aspects, the sacrificial aspects of the Old Covenant, 
th those things pass away as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but the moral obligations that are sometimes reflected by specific laws, other times by principles, those carry on for us as new covenant believers. All right, I'm going to wrap it up there for the day. Sean, good to see you. Raquel, um, I'll get to your follow-up question next time about our days being numbered. I hope to feel free next Thursday when uh, I'll be back here again on a Thursday afternoon. I can't believe it, three weeks in a row. Very happy to do these live programs whenever I can. Join us next Thursday right there at uh, noon again, Pacific time. Uh, give me your question again, Raquel. I'd love to follow up on it. Thank you all for joining us. Remember to click the thumbs up, the like button, whatever you call that thing. Subscribe, click for the notifications. All of these things, uh, they tell me that those things raise our visibility on the YouTube platform. And you're really not doing it for my own like uh, self-encouragement. Uh, it's just, if I'm going to do this, I'd rather more people see it than less. So thank you for all of that. God bless you. Very pleased you could join us today. And God bless you. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.